0: Everybody, everybody, everybody.
1: Drop your buffs. stop your your
0: Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Sean Ross.
1: I'm Evan Ross Katz
0: and today we are talking to our first winner of Survivor we're talking to Sophie Clark winner of Survivor South Pacific season 23 and iconic ninth place boot 10th place boot I should know this of winners at war
1: went out with an idol in her crotch
0: yeah she did
1: she did she did indeed
0: uh, Evan, what do you remember about S- Sophie's win in South Pacific? I know you just watched this in the past year.
1: Well, I remember being such an Aussie Stan throughout the season that I think I was a little bit blinded to Sophie's arc on the show because I was so bummed. I remember really loving her from the outset, but being bummed that her and Ozzy didn't never really found a groove of working together. So I think I have had a little bit of, I don't think I was enough of a fan of hers because of those Ozzy blinders, but I know, you know, having just watched her boot on winners at war uh, just a couple of days ago, I, feel like she was definitely my favorite character on winners at war by by a mile and uh that's pretty much i've always really liked sophie yeah what about you yeah so i
0: can really remember vividly some aspects of watching south pacific when it aired it's such a weird season because of all of the religious uh elements in it this coach and Brandon alliance that Sophie was a part of that that was so like we are Christians and we are doing this for God. I mean, at one point coach even prays to God to give him a name to write down. And that's how he justifies voting Brandon out after Brandon gives up his uh, hidden or not hidden his immunity necklace. And there's just like so much of it was like really icky and just weird and strange But I remember thinking Sophie is the level-headed person here. She is the voice of reason on this season. And I specifically remember watching the finale and seeing Coach up against Sophie. And Sophie does this incredible job at the final tribal council in front of the jury, just laying out her gameplay and really making, like, huge splashes at that final tribal because she came in with the jury not loving her personality and she just laid out her gameplay. She did the opposite of Amanda. She didn't apologize for anything. She even exposed things because Coach kept going with this Christianity thing and, you know, there was that great moment in the final tribal where Sophie went hey by the way you know this thing with the hidden immunity idol that uh coach secretly had and brandon was searching for and then they it got to the point where they had to like stage a discovery of the hidden immunity idol after praying to god that he would help them to find it she blew all of that up at tribal and i think gained a lot of respect from the jury and so by the time that the votes came in i was so thrilled that she won I remember literally jumping out of my seat and jeering which has not happened with many winners and so it was just like such a delight that she won such a delight that she came back for winners at war and I can't even believe that she is our first winner here on Drop Your Buffs
1: yeah what an honor and 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 not for nothing someone who is also a fan of the show uh so has really strong opinions both about her two seasons on the show but also just like a Genuine interest and curiosity about Survivor that feels that has her in this unique position as both icon and fan, mm-hmm. um, which makes her really unique uh, in many senses. And also, not for nothing, I think sometimes Sophie is perceived as like one of the lesser thought-about winners because you have these more like braggadocious winners like your Robs and like your Parvades. When you really think about it, in this interview, Sophie mentioned uh, Fabio at one point, and like I hadn't even thought of him since watching 21. So if you really think about it in the continu- continuum of winners, uh, yes, I do not think Sophie is a top of mind winner for many, um, just because, as I mentioned, you have those, those, those bigger, bigger players that are sort of cemented in our memories. But Sophie is not a bottom tier winner by any measure. And also, fuck the tier system at the end of the day, because <laughs> as much as Rob Mariano is probably perceived as the most famous survivor winner, I think through through the lens of drop your buffs, I think that Rob would fall under one of the bottom tier winners if we were to use that system. So it was really fun having this opportunity to check in with Sophie. And I'm really excited for people to hear her thoughts, not only on both of her two times out at the show, but we get into season 41 quite a a bit. And that's really exciting because, as I said, she is a fan as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. So without further ado, let's present the audience with our Conversation with Sophie Clark. Sophie Clark was a 22-year-old medical student when she competed in Survivor's 23rd season, South Pacific, alongside a cast of newbies and two returning players, Coach and Ozzy. Sophie found herself on the Upolu tribe and quickly joined an alliance that included Coach, Albert, Rick, Edna, Brandon Hance, and sometimes even God himself depending on who you ask. This alliance carried them all through to the merge where they also managed to pick up an extra member convincing Cochrane to flip on his Savaii alliance and help vote out Ozzy for the second time that season, Jim Rice and Don Meehan. After Ozzy returned from Redemption Island at the Final Five, he targeted Sophie, even going so far as to call her a spoiled brat at Tribal Council. However, she managed to survive that vote and went on to defeat Ozzie in the final immunity challenge and send him to the jury once and for all. And after one of the strongest final Tribal Council performances of all time, in my opinion, Sophie earned six votes to win, beating out Coach and Albert to become the sole Survivor. Nearly nine years later, Sophie returned to our screens to compete in the landmark 40th season of Survivor, Winners at War. She quickly aligned with Yul Kwan, who she called her Nerd Shield, and they worked on creating an alliance with other one-time players which helped to eliminate Amber Mariano on day three. After a tribe expansion, Sophie found a hidden immunity idol, formed a close alliance with Sarah Lucina, and participated in the ousting of Tyson and Boston Rob. After the merge, Sophie found herself in a strong alliance that included Sarah, Tony, Kim, and Jeremy concerned that the strong men in the game could align with each other sophie set her target on wendell who became the first post-merge boot of the season however tony grew concerned about the relationship between sophie and sarah and on day 28 he took advantage of a well-planned vote split and led a blindside against sophie sending her to the edge of extinction with an idol in her pocket Sophie would go on to vote for Tony to win Season 40, helping to crown him Survivor's second two-time winner. Sophie is one of only three newbie players to beat out a returning player for the win at a final Tribal Council, she's the only player to win two immunity challenges in one day, and she's a brand new mom! Welcome to Drop Your Buffs and congratulations, Sophie Woo! Clark.
2: Thank you, Sean and Evan. Woo. We're so excited I'm to have you. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> and that was such a such a long and wonderful introduction. It's great. We're living it.
1: We want to start by asking, you know, you filmed this show in 2011. And here we are, 10 plus years later, talking about it. Did you have any inclination at the time when you first got the call saying you were cast in season 23 that this would go on to be such a part of your life decades later?
2: Uh, OK, t- tough question, because I think obviously the answer is No, I think when you, first of all, it's hard to fathom going on Survivor, let alone fathom what your life would be like after going on Survivor. Um, I had been a huge fan for a a very long time. Uh, And I think I imagined once once I was cast that it was going to be like probably a singular experience and be done. Um, that said, I was actually going through today some old emails um, because I was going on this podcast out of like nostalgia, and I was looking back and I saw it even before I was cast on Survivor, when I first sent my application tape, I was in college and I was at that time emailing all my friends, letting them know. I don't know why I was doing this, let, just letting them know I was going to be on Survivor, and this was back in like you know October 2010. Uh, I had group email chains letting everybody know. By the way, I'll be on Survivor next year, which is insane. Like I hadn't even submitted <laughs> it yet. So I want to say no. Of course I couldn't have fathomed it, but on this, at the same time, obviously I was like very confident that I was even going on the show. So I probably was equally confident that it was you know I was probably confident I was going to be the next host or something absurd. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I feel like Survivor is a little bit like people think of Survivor as a TV show, but it's also like truly being stranded on a desert island for 39 days. And I think if anybody in this world was stranded on a desert for 39 days, that would be such a defining moment of their life. Let alone have it aired on national television. That I think most ex survivors have this like love hate relationship where they part of them feels like I really need to move on, uh, and then the other part of them feels like this is a really important experience in my life and I'm still connected to it. I think I have more embraced the latter and am truly like a super fan myself um, mm. and feel almost embarrassed when people come up to me on the street or coworkers say like you know, oh my God, you probably don't want to talk about this, but did you see survivor last night? And my answer is like, actually, I really, really do want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a great episode. I feel like I'm supposed to be cooler. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've totally embraced survivor being a part of my life. I love it. Mm.
0: Yeah, I love that. Let's go back then to South Pacific because uh, I do want to touch on something that I touched on in the intro, which is the dynamic of the Apollo tribe and how unique in survivor history it was and how strange it was as i'm sure you're well aware um that you had this like coach-led brand enhanced-led cult-like environment uh, that was so heavily based on and influenced by religion or at least like the uh performance of religion out there by some players and it's one that i think that a lot of level-headed players wouldn't be able to survive i put myself in that Uh, in that situation. I'm like, I could not deal with this. So like, how quickly did you realize you'd have to adapt and blend into this alliance? And were there ever moments where you almost reached a breaking point and thought like, maybe this isn't the alliance for me?
2: Uh, I think that I was lucky to kind of, um, I mean, obviously not pure luck, but I think I was lucky to do that weird season at that unique moment of my life. I mean, the season is I don't know if you felt this, Evan, having watched everything now so much later, but I feel like South Pacific stands out as just an odd duck of survivor seasons. Um, And I think that I was lucky to do that season when I was so young. I I think I was 21, actually, when we filmed it. Um, and uh, I think I naturally have an inclination of like leading from the background. Even my job right now, I'm a chief of staff. Like what that means is, is basically the person behind the scenes. And I think particularly at the age of 21, I was the kind of person who, um, I was good. I had two older sisters who were, who were twins. Like I was very good at being a quietly manipulated person in our real life. I also think at the age of 21, you're so used to adults at that point, I thought I was an adult, but obviously I was not mm-hmm. telling you what to do. Like, you are still a child. You were under your parents' rules, then you were under college rules. And so for me, it was very natural to go into Survivor and feel like, okay, now I am under this new set of rules, you know, um, d- dictated by a coach, but I can still like, make my way through them in the way that I would in my everyday life. Um, I think had, had I gone on that season at this age, I would have had a much harder time i would have been like what is this bullshit like stacy and Christine, let's all get together this is crap but at the time i was like i can do this i can pretend to pray you know i can let everybody else be in charge like that's what you do when you're 20 years old um unless you're you know incredibly unique anyway um so i think i was lucky to be doing at that time in my life when i was ready to be kind of deferential
0: it felt to me at times there's so many moments where when religion comes up either at tribal council or on the beach, there's so many moments where it seems like you're kind of like, if you're just on the verge of breaking, you know, your <laughs> eye rolling or you're looking down or you're like, oh my God, like this, this again. And at, like on the flip side of being a 21 year old, you're also almost like, you know, a little bit of a rebel or you're like more uh, less risk averse. And you might go just like, and no, this is so stupid. Like, stop this. Um, in a way that like, I, like, you know, we talked to Courtney, like a a Courtney-style response to that kind of a conversation going on around you.
2: And it's funny because I feel like I was having a lot of a Courtney-style response, um, the the queen that she is, uh, but doing it similar actually to Courtney, like more with the producers, um, and it wasn't actually, sh- it wasn't shown that much. And I think part of the reason is, I don't think they quite knew how to edit me. I think usually with winners, especially female winners, like they, they want they want somebody to be lovable. And I do have like a little bit of an insecurity that like maybe I just wasn't that lovable. Like I didn't give them enough lovable content to be able to frame the winner that way. So they're like, how do we show stuff? How do we make an, ex- an audience excited about this person winning who maybe is like a little r- rougher around the edges than our, than our kind of normal winners? Um, I will also say with the the religion stuff. Um, my I grew up not in a religious household uh, by any means, but my my you know, my mother went to church. I grew up going to church many weekends with her, um, and so I think I had a little. That was also good for me because I was able to like not just um, look like I like like I knew what I was doing. I hadn't been to church for years, but like I knew what mm-hmm. I looked like. I could look like I knew what I was doing. And I remember there was even one day, the only day, <laughs> one time that I think I said to Brandon, I was like, do you want me to pray today? Um, And I ended up, I think it was somebody's birthday, I can't remember, whatever. There was one prayer that I remembered from growing up in church, and I recited that prayer. And Brandon is from the kind of church where people are like kind of standing up and like, I don't even know what this is called, but like making up their own prayers, you know, saying, blessed be the, the idol under our feet, and like all these very creative stuff. And I grew up going to a church that was more um, by the book, so like mm. you just read the prayers out of the book. You weren't kind of riffing. Um, and I remember, I, 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 the one prayer I knew because I said it every time in church was this birthday prayer, uh, like bless over our daughter, O oh Lord, as her days increase. Like I can still say it to this day. And I remember after I said the prayer, Brandon turned to me and said, "That was so beautiful." <laughs> and he thought that I had like made it up in the way that he makes up his own prayers. And I was like, "Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate wow. that." Um, But I feel like it got me a lot of cred with this, like, you know, that one prayer went a long way on that season.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wanna talk about one of your bigger adversaries on that season, and that is Ozzy. Um, You have the unique perspective of having watched him play on the show twice before, and as you mentioned up top, you were a super fan of this show, so no, no doubt you knew about Ozzy and the legend of Ozzy because it's no secret that the producers of Survivor really liked and hopefully like Ozzy. So I'm wondering how you went into the game, what your perspective on him was, how it changed once you got to know the real person, and I also just want to mention, I spoke to Ozzy earlier today ahead of this interview because I wanted to ask him how, you, how what he thought of you now with all this time that's passed. And I thought he said something really interesting. He said, we're cool. We definitely made up. Rather, I let go of my sore loser resentment. And I just think that sort of highlights one of my favorite things about Ozzy and having returning players on the show is the ability to like witness growth. And so I just wanted you to know that he is a big fan of yours. So wanted to know sort of like what was what's your evolution of feeling on on Ozzy?
2: So I was a big fan of Ozzy going into the show. I mean, I'd probably been the 16 year old fan girl. I'm trying to think when Ozzy was first in the show, how old I would have been. But I was certainly like there was an age in my life where I was into ozzy like ready to sign up to his only fans like the whole thing um and then i think it's it, i will say it's a little hard to remember exactly because now i have you know new ozzy no i know ozzy in my brain but i do remember when they first came out immediately feeling like i wanted coach on my on my team and part of that was that like i was going into the show my whole persona that i had in um casting was like i'm gonna play a badass game i'm gonna manipulate i'm gonna lie and this is back in the day where like that was not necessarily what everybody said in casting like nowadays the whole cast is like i'm gonna be the strategic mastermind but this is back in the days where some people would come in and say like don like i'm a mother you know a more mother of seven and like i want to show that i have such great values and so i came into the show being like i need to align myself with those people i want the people that are like easy not easy to read so much as like i know why they're here and when I got to my tribe, I was excited about Michaela because I was like, I think Michaela's here to be famous, and like I can understand then how she's gonna play the game. And I think Rick is here for the experience, and I think Coach is here for honesty. And Aussie was somebody who, when he came back and I saw him, I thought Aussie's more like in my boat. Aussie's here to win the game. Like he's already played twice. He's not messing around with us anymore. Like he's he's going to manipulate. So I think immediately when I saw them, I was kind of anti ozzy not wanting to have anything to do with him. And then, as you can imagine, like competing against Ozzy does not make you like him anymore, um, because he's just really good at things. And so, like most challenges, they'd win. Like Ozzy would win. So I think by the time I actually met Ozzy face to face in the game, I had already grown to like despise him. Um, I think it also served to my benefit. You know, part of the way that Upolu, part of the way like our cult family managed ourselves was by creating. Um, enemies and building up those people as big enemies. We all convinced, not convinced ourselves, but that was like the the, the main story of the camp was like, Ozzy is evil, Savai is evil. And it was important to maintain that. So I think by the time I met Ozzy, I was so ready to like create him as being the adversary. Um, and I think Ozzy was like one of the few people in the other tribe who like kind of had my number um, which you, which I think you, you saw. Um, and he was going he was I was one of the people he was going after when it came to like who on who on Upolu did he think he could kind of try to rally the troops around. Um, so we we very much bought it. I think we made up very quickly after the game. I mean, I think in many ways actually we are very similar. Um, not just in the way that we play Survivor, um, but also just like in real life, I think we have a lot of the same values and a lot of the same interests. Uh, and interestingly on Survivor, sorry, I am really rambling. I, I'm terrible. Please do. If, if this no, is a bad podcast, fascinated. I'm going to apologize. But I'm going into a whole different direction now, which is like, for some reason on Survivor, I align myself with like the biggest conservative Republican Trumpers. Like, I don't know why <laughs> this happened in both of my seasons. Like, why are my allies, Brandon Hans, Rick, Sarah Lucina, and Ben? Um, and it's Let's so talk about crazy <laughs> because I get off the season and then I'm like with Ozzy, he, you know, we like immediately bonded over just like real life things, um, in a way that suddenly I found myself being, if being very difficult to relate to Brandon and to Rick in those ways. And a very similar thing, you know, happened on Winter's at War. And I think this is like a whole nother thing, but Survivor I think does just strip away so much of like the real life that what becomes important is some kind of weird like inner soul of yourself and I suppose in my very inner soul I am just like a trumper or something I don't I don't know um,
0: don't say that
2: <laughs> it's interesting you
1: say that though because I remember when watching it and you know I'm watching it for the first time I became a full-blown Aussie super fan yeah. I still am and I remember falling in love with you so much on that season and wanting these two players that I loved to work together yeah. so it was frustrating as a viewer when you have two players and you know I think I had that same instinct you had after the fact of like these two people should be getting along yeah. um but again it's a game what was your experience like then of watching him during Game Changers
2: oh it, I had a lot of fun watching him during Game Changers and part of it is because like Ozzy is who Ozzy is and I feel like there is something for me I get a lot of joy over when I watch Survivor about not seeing somebody who's like a super gamer just trying to be a gamer, but somebody who's just like purely being themselves, sometimes against their better interests. And I feel like Ozzy is one of those players that like every time he plays, he seems to have some of like the same challenges. And as a viewer, as a friend, obviously, I wish that he'd done a lot better, but as a viewer, I find that like so compelling. And like, that's the reason I love reality TV. Like you're just seeing Ozzy be Ozzy again. And like, maybe there is a group of people where Ozzy will finally get to like be winner Ozzy. Although I worry that was, you know, Probably um, Cook Islands, and that and that time has passed for him. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I would love to see Ozzy play five times over again. I feel like he would make small incremental process, uh, progress, and we would see him <laughs> potentially like you know fail in the same way ten times over, and it would be great television and bad for Ozzy. Yeah, would be agreed.
0: So you touched on your winner edit, quote unquote, winner edit a little bit earlier. And there's always so much discussion and analysis of edits on Survivor and not just winner edits, but, you know, like edgic and week to week uh, uh, editing and who's getting the confessionals, et cetera, et cetera. And South Pacific is a great example of a season where the winner edit isn't predictable. And I think now it seems like we're getting another one in Survivor 41. There's a lot of talk, uh, you know, Shan just went home and she was getting like a coronation at it. And so it's, it's these kinds of seasons that I find really exciting to watch because suddenly the playing field sort of like opens up. But I'm wondering, like from your perspective, when you got home from South Pacific, you've got, you know, you're in the final three, you probably have a pretty good feeling after that tribal council. And you go home to watch the show, and it's like where's Sophie for a little while. Yeah. Uh, so what was that like? And does that affect the way that you watch news seasons? Does that affect the way you're watching season forty one?
2: It definitely. It, it was very hard. So I came home being like, holy as you can imagine, like holy shit, I just won Survivor. Um, and I remember, you know, talking to Cochran, who was another super fan, and Cochran being like, like you are going to be like the badass chick. Who in Survive, like it's just like a new type. Like you're it's like you're gonna get like the edit. And Cochran probably knew what edgy was. Like I was a super when I say super fan, I probably just mean casual fan. Like I just seen all this Survivor at that time. But Cochran was like, you know, he was deep in the forums. Um, and I just remember week after week really just like being disappointed over and over again because you don't you you don't get the producer calling you before the show and saying, Hey, by the way, just to let you know, like you're gonna have six confessionals and, and that's gonna be it. So I just remember being it was kinda of sad. Like I, I was young, I was excited, and each week I kept thinking, like, this must be the week that I'm gonna break out. Um, and I I I remember so the internet generally was really difficult for me at the time. I think the internet has become a much nicer place since 2011. Like I, I've actually saved a lot because I'm sadistic. Like I've saved a lot of um, nasty things that people sent to me in 2011, and they are things that I think that nobody would would write on Twitter anymore. Like I mm-hmm. think there was a little bit of a wild west, like no repercussions, and now I think that the the, the good part of cancel culture is people don't do this stuff. Um, and I say this because I remember the internet being hard for two reasons. One is like just a lot of like nasty comments about like me and the way I talk and the way I walk and my body and like things that like nobody should ever hear about themselves ever. Um, and makes it very clear to me why like Lindsay Lohan is totally messed up. And then two, like a lot of criticisms of my game. And I found it surprising how um, hurtful it was because I was like wrestling with, this is the experience I had. Like, I felt like I controlled the entire game. Like I was out there in my confessionals being like, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. Every single vote went my way. Even the vote that looks like it didn't go my way, it went my way, they didn't edit it that way. Yeah, it's just like, you have one sense of how the game went. And then honestly, when people view something else and when you see an edit, you even start to question like, am I delusional? Like, is is that maybe kind of also is everybody else right? Is the edit right? Is that how I played? Um, I will say that because of this, I am I do have the tendency to just uh, have like I just my heart goes out to some of the under-edited players. And especially in this season, I'm kind of excited about Erica and secretly hope and think potentially that she wins and that she mm-hmm. is like another kind of under-edited winner. Um and it's, I mean, it's, I, part of the reason I can't believe it is given how long we've been since a female winner, I just can't believe that they would, they would do that to a female winner after whatever it's been yeah. seven years. Like, really? A woman wins this game again? We're going to barely see her?
0: Yeah. That's my big hesitation yeah. with the Erica edit. And, and there's been much talk of Erica's quote-unquote winner edit, and I'm here for it. But I don't know how convinced I am for the exact reason that you're talking about. Like, are we really going to like purple her all the way to the end like we're gonna just not show her game and it doesn't add up to me because i do feel like she may be the winner i like if it's not her then who is it ricard uh, so
2: how do you guys feel about heather's edit uh i think huh
0: yeah this is a big question so this this actually is something that i am evolving on as we speak because I felt very bad for Heather, just having gone through like the entire part you've gone through a casting process, um, you've you know, rearranged your life potentially to go out there. you're playing this game. she's obviously doing well. I mean, she's gonna be at least the top seven. And then she comes home and she's not on TV ever. And so I have felt bad for her. Now, I have also been keeping up with the exit interviews and, Um, there's been some like sort of eh, insinuations dropped Uh, so like Shan talked about how Heather is ignorant and has made some comments that rubbed people the wrong way and so I'm starting and I don't want to like go too far down that rabbit hole without having the information but I'm wondering low-key whether the editors are doing her a favor in some way
2: yeah I think they might be I mean even the small things we have seen of Heather she's a bit cuckoo right yeah. Like, yeah.
1: yeah i mean there was the secret scene with her dream and and, and with about um sydney i do think what what also struck me early on in the season when she had a challenge that she was not able to complete i felt that the way the show handled that both props and the edit felt a little patronizing to me in yeah. the sense of like rewarding someone for not ever succeeding whereas with Suri in um, Game Changers, she finished the challenge, right? So, like the there was a lesson learned there, which is that like you know it doesn't matter if you do it under the time limit as long as you complete the task. But yeah. I felt like the lesson for the quote unquote kid survivors, which Jeff seems to be playing really heavy handed to this season, I'm not sure what the lesson was. It's like you kind of like you don't have to win and you don't even have to finish, but yeah. that's okay. Anyway, I don't want to get too far into season 41 just yet. Um, Let's rewind the tape a little bit and talk some winners at war. Um, In the early days of winners at war, we see you and Yule working to unite the one-time disconnected players, if you will. And I have to say, I was so effing excited to see you and Yule playing together. Uh, That was uh, a high point for me. I have to say my Winners at War experience just uh, sours more and more as the episodes go along as I watch my favorites leave the game. Um, How much were you involved in pregame alliances and how did those pan out for you once you hit the beach? Okay, so I will
2: will give you the the scoop on that, um, which is I was very reluctant to be doing any pregame stuff. I had been in casting before for, for returning seasons and was pretty overwhelmed by how serious the pregaming was. Like I was in casting for game changers and actually was called to go out there and couldn't go. Um, and I remember I had like uh Brad Culpepper texting me from like the hotel room next door telling me that like we were gonna like it was just the whole thing was overwhelming. And I remember thinking that Dawn Um, was really lucky on Survivor, um, like second fans versus favorites, because she was a a last-minute swap-out. I'm trying to remember who she was swapped out for. Um, Wouldn't have been champ. Uh, Somebody, a a different older woman. woman. Um, And I think part of the reason she did so well in that season was that she didn't have to do all that pre-gaming alliance, and people kind of had to just deal with her as she was coming in. And so I also felt like on Winners at War, I was going in in like kind of a good situation where I wasn't going in as a Parvati of John, you know, Boston Rob or whatever. Um, but I also wasn't going in as like pure cannon fodder. And actually, I had a I've been around like the survivor scene for long enough that I had some relationships with some of like a lot of the people, but in a way that I don't think was as obvious as, say, a Tyson or a Parvati or something. Like Parvati and I were friends in New York. Like she, Like we spent Fourth of July together at my parents' house once, like Tyson I knew through Stephen um, Fish, I knew quite a few people through um, Stephen Fishback and just like the whole New York survivor scene, but in a way that was kind of low key. So I actually was like, I'm in a very good spot here where I have a lot of relationships that maybe aren't as obvious. and I'm not seen as super threatening, but not cannon fodder. So I was very reluctant to mess anything up preseason. That was like my main thing. I was not in the position of like Sandra's big pre gamer. Like there's people out, Michelle, there were people out there who were serious pre gamers, and I was like, I want to go in not setting my game up, but just like not messing it up. Like that I can, the like pre game was almost scarier to me. Like if I can just get through the pre game and get onto the beach, and not have screwed myself over, that will be success. Anyway, so. The only person that I talked to pre-game, which isn't quite true, actually, I'll, I'll give you the caveats later, um, was Yule. Uh, so Yule and I had met right after my win on South Pacific. He was in New York. And Cochran had worked for him in DC and put us in touch. And we went out to dinner. Um, I can't remember why, but we did. Uh, and we kept in touch like mildly over the years, partially because he'd actually worked at the same company that I later worked at, like a big consulting company. Um, and had kind of like similar life paths in some ways. And he had a brother who went to medical school and decided not to be a doctor anyway. So we had talked a few times and he reached out and he kind of positioned himself as being in a similar position to me of like, I'm out of the game. I don't really know anybody. If everybody else is pre-gaming, we have to kind of talk too. It's going to be important. And I was like, okay, great. Yule and I will talk. That's like a good person to have. Um, I remember the first time I talked to Yule at my bachelorette party, uh, which is wasn't a real bachelorette party, but like a cabin in the woods with five girls. And I thought we were just gonna get on the phone and say like, hey, what's up? It's nice to t- chat, like say to see you in the beach. And it turned into like more than an hour of pre-gaming. Um, and because Yule was just like such an academic, thoughtful person. like he really wanted to go through each member of the cast, talk about like our relations to them, how we would do it. like he really wanted to game it out. Um, and I remember feeling like this is too much, <laughs> but like I need to now I need to do this because like I am already playing the game of survivor. Um, and then Yule surprisingly turned out to be like one of the bigger pre-gamers on our season. And Yule like had a whole alliance going into the game. Like he had talked to Michelle, he had talked to Wendell, he had talked to Nick and he said to me, I don't think they knew that Yule and I had talked. Um, but he said to me at some point, listen, I've talked to Michelle um, and Nick, maybe it actually wasn't Wendell, just Michelle and Nick. I've talked to Michelle and Nick and I really want to bring you in and have the four of us on a conference call. And I said to him, listen, like, it's too much for me. Like, you know, like, I will not tell anybody that you're talking to anybody, but like, just don't, don't bring me into it. Please don't mention my name. Um, So that was my extent of pre-gaming, but it was actually really useful going in because it knew, I knew that Yule and Nick had talked. So I felt a little more comfortable about aligning with Nick thinking like he and Yule are probably good. Um, So, and it was also just helpful to have information about what people were thinking. Um, And uh, but I would say it's funny because the pregame experience I had with Yule, like, it played out in the island too. Like, we are—I think we are both nerds, come in a lot of forms. Uh, and I think we are both nerds in some ways, but he's a very different archetype of nerd than I am. Like, he is much more cerebral. Um, he's like a little slower, not in a negative way, but he just like wants to think through every single element. And I think I'm—I'm I'm a little bit more of like, I'll go on my intuition. Um, and so it was helpful actually aligning with him because I feel like in what I said in the show, like, he looks like a nerd, he talks like a nerd, he acts like a nerd, he is a nerd, and I feel like I sometimes am able to, like, get away with not necessarily having that plastered all over my face. Um, and so it was helpful having helpful having him be that person. Um, the other pre-gaming stuff I did, I had just, like, a couple of very small comments with people. Like, Nick, I think, DM'd me and said, the, the main vibe that was happening before the season was, like, the newbies, or, like, the... The less cool winners were kind of all DMing each other, as far as I could tell, being like, man, like, you know, I think, you know, Parvati and Rob might all get together and stuff like that. So I had Nick message me, um, Danny Boatwright texted me, and then I had Sandra text me literally like the day before I left, which I think was because she'd just gotten her phone. Like she was in this quick transition, but it was a different number. I had to a, have a Sandra's old number. And I was like, this is somebody's effing with me. Like this is this is production. <laughs> Uh, and so I made her call me, and it was just like, hey, it's Sandra. And I was like, what is happening here? Like, I've never talked to you in my life. And she's also like a really intense pre So she was like, all right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. But Sandra does that with everybody, so it's hard to know what's true. Hmm. Anyway, that was pregaming.
1: One more question on the pre-gaming. I'm just curious because one of the big themes of Winners at War is this sort of like old school versus new school mentality. And one of the reasons why... I am, so I am very, very, very old school loyal when it comes to this show. I mean, like, my favorite seasons are seasons one through ten. I like a pre-idol game. Like, you know, I, I really, I just appreciate, like, the legends, like, the Tina Wessons, the Vesepias, etc. And I felt like this show was very heavy-handed towards later season winners. And and I'm just curious sort of how you saw yourself in all of that. I know you mentioned that you felt like you were one of, like, the lesser acclaimed winners. But in the old school, new school divide, you would... Technically fall under new school, but because the season was so heavily skewed towards very new school, where did you see yourself?
2: I mean, I think that I'm in this weird, like middle school. <laughs> I mean, the, the way the same way that like middle schoolers are like awkward and pimply, I think there's a couple of us that are truly in that middle school phase. Um, and it's like me and Denise and Kim where I say we, I don't think we play like new schoolers. Uh, I don't think we've had the same experience as new schoolers. But I also think we're, you know, we're so obviously not old school survivor. Um, And I think that was that, that same dynamic happened out in Winners at War, I very much felt, I still felt like I looked at Nick and Wendell and Michelle and thought like, this is not my era of survivor. And yet I was not, you know, like, I think, Ethan's old school t-shirts. Like I didn't get an old school t-shirt. Like I'm not part of that club either. Uh, so I definitely felt like I didn't I didn't have a place. Um, but again, I think on Winners at War, that was like a nice place to be for me and Kim and, and Denise and kind of like, you know, treading in those waters. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you and Kim Spradlin are the two winners I was personally most excited to see back in season 40 because you were both so uh, strong in different ways in your seasons, Uh, women who were like really just kind of like barreled to the end uh, and performed great at final tribal. So I was really excited to see particularly the two of you go on to Winners at War and I really hoped that you would work together and you know, we had these moments with the shared idol and and I really thought that maybe you could write it out to the end of the game, but your relationship with Kim wasn't actually all that straightforward. Was you like were you hesitant to work with her and was that because of the way that she played the game in One World?
2: Yes, completely. I feel like Kim and I had this like love story that didn't quite like get shown on the show which was from the very beginning Kim and I had this like emotional bond um, where we just clicked I think we're similar in many ways uh, but Kim is so hard like Kim I remember the first time she met me she was like you know the reason I so she was in casting for South Pacific and she wasn't cast and she was cast later for One World and she said you know the reason I wasn't cast is because you know we're obviously so similar and the producers wouldn't want to cast both of us and I'm like oh my god what a compliment like you you're even like you're you're playing the game right now Um, So I definitely came into the game feeling like terrified of Kim and her charm. And very quickly you are charmed by Kim and I was charmed by Kim. And like, I felt like it was high school where I was just like, this is my best friend and this is who I want to hang out with. And Kim and I definitely had this problem on the island where like, I feel like we just kind of wanted to hang out. Uh, And people talked about this. I can't remember if it was talked about on the show or in Ponderosa, but people would talk about it being like Sophie and Kim are just like being clicky, which is obviously not a thing to do on Survivor. (laughs) Like it's not a way to make friends or win the game. Um, so I feel like I, I had this tension where like Kim and I would get along. We saw the game in similar ways. We were aligned, but at the same time, like I never trusted her and I couldn't let myself trust her because the problem with Kim is like the way she wins is by winning you over. So like, how do you ever trust that? How do you know if that's real love or not real love? Um, and I feel like I had these, I remember interviewing with producers and I remember, coming up with these crazy stories about the ways that Kim was trying to manipulate me. And at some point I remember one of the producers said to me, like, are you sure she's not just like a nice girl from Texas? <laughs> and I was like, that's possible. But maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> um and so I think it was a little bit one of my downfalls of the game was just never feeling like I could truly trust Kim. Um and I and mean, part of this, this was a whole storyline that was not shown, was like I had this idea throughout the season that I was gonna convince Kim, like Shan did this season to give me her half of the idol and then vote her out. And I had this grand plan. um, And that's actually the plan that Tony overheard at some point and part of the reason that I was eventually voted out. Um, uh, And so this like grand plan to try to get Kim's idol, partially because I thought she was gonna try to get me out anyway, I might as well try to get her out, um, was like, it almost like became an obsession for me and I think it would have just been, it, you know, it, it culminated in this very confusing episode in Winners at War where Kim and I are like suddenly at each other's throats going after each other. And it's like, what happened? I thought you guys were, you know, at this very confusing tribal council where you guys were on the same page. Um, it was just, it, it's just, Kim is like impossible to play with. And I think Kim playing with, if you've never seen Kim play before, is... I I worry that Kim's charm, she probably can't use again, right? Like, once you know that that's Kim's charm, everybody is, like, on edge around her. And knowing... It's hard to believe it's genuine, even if it is.
1: Yeah. No, that's without a doubt true. Let me ask you this. um, I was really, really disheartened, as I mentioned, to not see a lot of early winners back. But particularly sad not to see Tina, Vesepia, and Jenna Marasco back, who I thought are... Not, I don't think they're iconic. They are iconic. And I'm just curious if you had any reaction. I, I know it's as much smaller pool to pick from, unfortunately, when it comes to female winners. But I thought slighting the first three female winners of the show felt particularly
2: odd. Did you have any reaction to that? Uh, I was shocked to see Amber. I think there had been a lot of talk before the season. And I think mo- the the consensus was that Tina was definitely going to be out there. I mean, even though Tina you know, was older, like she had played many times. like and then i i was also like shocked by fisapia because i i was kind of thinking that this winners at war was going to be like a cool opportunity to bring back players who 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 hadn't played twice like i was thinking maybe they won't do amber but they'll do fisapia or maybe even like i was excited to kind of see fabio just because fabio mm. is such like a unique winner like having him out there to me would have been more interesting than like nick or somebody um so i remember when we first showed up at the airport like amber was the one that was surprising and like you know tina not being there um, and then on the men's side, like obviously, I would have loved Hatch uh, as just like for the like the icon um, part of it.
1: Yeah, uh, but you we, know, um... I
2: actually, I, Mar Marquesas is the one season I really want to go back and watch. I haven't seen it since it aired. Um, oh, love.
1: It's excellent. And the conversations about race yeah. are really uh, provocative. And 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 it's interesting. One thing that Sean and I talk about a lot on this podcast is how Survivor tends to not acknowledge its own past in a strange way. Yeah. So for instance, you had a comment from Shan on season 41 about this being the most diverse season of Survivor ever. But it's not. It's not. E- there are two seasons Cook of more diversity. Cook Islands and, and then Fiji, which follows it. So yeah. it's just interesting. And then even just like that's these so discussions of race on the show, Marquesas yeah. back, you know, in what, 2002, they were having conversations about sort of like the the yeah. the, the lack of people of color on the show. So I, I that's one of you the strange things. You think
2: that they would forget the history because like it's dirty? Like sometimes when I go back and watch Old Survivors, I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe this was on on TV. Like some of the stuff with a lot of the sexual assault stuff, like there's a lot of times okay. of women feeling uncomfortable where nothing is done.
1: It's a conversation we got into with Courtney and it's certainly one of the reasons why I think the show doesn't acknowledge Thailand. You know, it's kind of Thailand is seen as non-canon because of the sexual violence that takes place in that season. So yeah, I definitely think there's some reticence to look back at certain aspects of the show. Also Jeff's behavior in response to some of the actions on the show. I also think is something that he's probably not particularly uh, proud of. Um, I want to ask you. The question I have for
2: you. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I I have a question for you guys, which is like when all the Me Too stuff happened. I will say that I'm, I feel I feel very strongly about it, um, but I also don't know what the solution is. So, for example, I mean Survivor. I think it's just like tricky, right? It's not. This is not a scripted show where you can have rule like perfect. Like this is not a a a simple workplace where you just have workplace rules and you violate them and you get fired. Um, Like the Survivor is kind of. It's like. It's it's the gritty no rules part of life, and so for instance, when I was out there um, on season on Winners at War, uh, I cuddled with Boss and Rob at night at Yara at our beach because it was, well first of all it was freezing so we were all cuddling, um, and also part of the reason I did it was because I knew I was going to be voting him out, and he thought that I was on his side. Parvati had told him trust Sophie. Um, and I really played up to Rob how close Parvati and I were, and that I was gonna like work with him for the rest of the game. And part of the reason, like, I chose him as my nighttime warmth was I wanted to make him feel like we were comfortable. Um, and obviously, like, that is very tricky. Like, you go, you take that a little farther, and that's somebody at work letting their boss touch their knee because it get, you know, is makes it easier at work. And there's a lot of these scenarios on Survivor where maybe you touch somebody who you wouldn't otherwise touch. Or you let somebody touch you who you wouldn't otherwise touch, and you're doing it for this very calculated reason. But it's kind of effed up if you think about it that you're like you know sacrificing your body for a million dollars in many ways. Um, but it, then if you if you take that part completely out of the game, like part of the game is appeasing people and making people believe things that you believe about them without them um, knowing that you're lying. I just don't know how do you how do you make this a totally safe place to be and still have the game work. Like is that even possible?
1: I think posing questions like the one you're asking, I think is important. And I think that having, uh, you know, wellness checks with producers throughout the season, I think as we saw play out in season 39, asking the question, because I think that there are a lot of instances too, in which people, might be a situation in which they don't even realize um that they're feeling uncomfortable so or that you know they might for instance as you mentioned justify something that's happening to them as being part of the game and saying well i'm not experiencing this and so i think it's the responsibility of the producers to sort of be asking probing questions to ensure the safety of their players also if they want to have you know future players and you know how much this show is sort of like talking about young kids coming on and playing. This has to be something that is actively in conversation to sort of assuage any uh, fears about the show, especially when you look at a history with Thailand and with uh, uh, China and with the the Island of the Idols. Um, Yeah. So uh, going back to Winners at War, I want to ask about the family visit at Winners at War, which is historic in that it brings entire families out for the first time. As a viewer of the show, that moment with Tony and his kids really changed my perception of him. I had a very I mean, I often do with the family visits, I had a very emotional response to watching it. And I'm wondering if you had any similar thoughts about any of the players in that in getting to see them as parents, right? Because you know, we we sometimes see them with their significant other or a sibling, but I think it's a really different thing to watch these people Become more humanized by how they interact with their kids. What was that like for you?
2: Tony is Tony is the big one. Uh, I don't remember it coming out on TV so much, but like he is a real family man. Like he loves his wife, he loves his kids. He had a very like difficult childhood himself. Like I remember talk, him talking about how like he, he never really got to celebrate birthdays growing up. Like they never had birthday parties, they never had cakes, and how like so much of his life as a parent is like trying to give his kids like what. I mean, most of Survivor, to be honest, is talking about your families like what you see on the show is, I don't know, like 20% of what we talk about, maybe 25% um, is pure strategy, which is still a lot. And the other 75% is like people just telling stories about their families. Like you very quickly miss people in like a very extreme way. I mean, I I was out there drawing hearts on my water bottle like I was like in second grade for my husband, (laughs) like purely like trying to like make something physical out of my love. So you, that family visit, like you have heard so much about everybody and then you get to meet them. And there is this element where like, everybody's so eager to like show off their loved one. Like, this is the person I was just telling you about. Um, I think the people who are always the most surprising are the ones who like seem really hard in the game and then like truly do break down. Um, like Tony was one. I think that the, the dangerous, the dangerous people, the dangerous part about it is like, Often people will use the family visit as a way to like forge deeper bonds with people. Like I definitely had moments with Tony's family during that family visit where we were all like, we're, you know, this is a real relationship. Like we are doing this to the end. Um, and so there's nothing to go on on Survivor. There's nothing to go on to trust people other than like their voting history and like the emotional connection that you've had with them. And so the family visit is really dangerous in that like people. People become even more real and even more people esque, and then like that forges these closer bonds, which then become like easier to break, or at least easier to blindside. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, everybody. I will say there was an element of this family visit and winners at war where like everybody with kids, it felt a little bit like they were in a Hallmark movie, and then those of us who just like had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiancé, we were like, uh, like it just felt a little pathetic, like. (laughs) (laughs) like everybody else was having this like really serious moment and we were really happy to see all of our loved ones, but it it wasn't quite the same as like seeing the kids and Kim and her whole like harem or not harem. That's the wrong word, but like, you know, 15 kids (laughs) or whatever she has.
0: So you get voted out in this uh, really unfortunate way, blindsided with an idol in your pocket. Of course, as I mentioned, we just saw this happen in Survivor (laughs) 41. (laughs) We just saw this happen again in Survivor 41 to fan favorite Shan. I feel like, Sophie, you were a fan favorite in Winners at War. So I feel like I'm just like it's deja vu. It's always happening to us. And as someone who was voted out with an idol in your pocket, I'm curious to get your take on what went wrong for Shan. And like, you know, so I was listening to you on Rob's podcast and you were saying, you know, just you have to play, if you have the idol, play it. But ha- like, how do you play the idol right? Is it offensively? I, is it defensively?
2: I, I feel like I've become more and more convinced that just like idols are grenades, like they're they're just bad for you. It is bad. It is bad to have one. Um, I I feel like if I ever played again, <laughs> I got one, it would be like a hot potato. I would try to get rid of it immediately. Um, I think that when you're, it's when you're out there, it's so hard to. I think this is a little bit of robust, it's but it's so hard to take a step back and try to like see your place in the game. I mean, this is like real life, right? It's hard to put yourself in other people's shoes and like see life from their point of view. And on Survivor, you get so obsessed with like the chessboard that you've created and how you're gonna move all the pieces and how you're gonna win the game that it's hard to remember, like how is everybody else viewing me? And like, I think it's hard in real life too. Like, like, I don't think many people have a really good accurate perception of how they're viewed by their family and work, like their place. Um like it's all so warped and on survivor I think that's that's ever even more true. Um and I think Shan probably as m- it's hard I think sh- she probably could not fathom like the level of threat that she was and that it it could happen. Like you get you get so such a clear view as to like what's going to happen towards the end of the every single player out there knows that they're going to win the game. They're like this is the st- six steps that it takes to win the game. And it's hard to just its hard to just take yourself out of that and believe that it's going to happen to you. Uh, I, I certainly felt that way. I think a, the other thing is once people have an idol, they have this like dream of using it at the last moment. Mm-hmm. I think if you ask anybody on that season, when are you going to use the idol, they're going to say at the final five. Like, what is that last moment? That's going to be the one to get me into the final tribal. And I think if people reframed the idol as like, each time imagining that it blowed up, maybe this is the time to use it. Um, I just think people they can't bear to like take it out of their pocket. Like they want to always have it for the next one. That's that's how I felt. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think people's bar for using an idol is like much too high. Although I think it, it must be changing after seeing so many people go out with an idol in their pocket. I would think that these days, like survivors, these days, also how many idols are in the game. Um, I'm hopeful that these days people will will use it more often. Mm.
0: Well, maybe, but it's like at this point in season 41, there's been no idols played, right? There's three idols in, in there, there were three idols in play and none have been played. And it's like, yeah. And that makes me wonder, like,
2: are idols even idols or are they just targets? Like, can you even say an idol is good?
0: Would Shan have gone home if she didn't have an idol?
2: I don't think so. I,
1: I My question, I guess, is like, did they realize that in creating this broccoli and all of the statements that everyone would in fact know who has an idol? Part It seems like they would have known that, but I am not quick to give the producers that much credit. And so I sort of feel like they didn't realize that this would really fundamentally change idol usage as a result in this change in strategizing how one finds the idol.
2: I think that's right. And I think... I think probably what they hoped is what's, so I, I'm i of the belief that like human interactions are interesting in and of themselves and we don't need to insert a lot of things into the game. And like you saw this in this last episode, how amazing, how incredible was that TV? Like I want to watch that 10 times over again. Mm-hmm. And that had nothing to do with idols. That was personal relationships. That was two people having different points of view and having to work it out. And I think that when producers fall back, Part of the reason I think producers do these like connected idols, they did it on here with the broccoli shit, they did it on my season with two parts of the idol needing to be shared, is they're trying to manufacture relationships. They're trying to force two people to be connected so that later those two people have to deal with that relationship in some way that causes drama. And I just think it's unnecessary. I think it's more interesting to see people deal with relationships in a way that caused drama in a more organic way. You think like Shane Powers and Courtney on their season. Like Their drama was not over an idol. Like Their drama was over Mm -hmm. two people who are totally different and having to work together because they were in an alliance already. And I think that's why they do this stuff with the broccoli is that they're hoping to connect people who might not otherwise be connected a la Shane and Courtney, and then make them work through that connection and cause interesting TV. And I get it, like that is interesting. I just think that that's gonna happen naturally on Survivor anyway, uh, because that's the name of the game.
1: Right, and I think that's one of the reasons why Borneo was the success story it was, was because of that dynamic casting. Um, But I want to go back to Winners at War once more, because I have a question that I think is sort of a bigger picture question, but it's something that was sort of uh, brought to the forefront in Winners at War. At Tribal, Sarah Lucina said, quote, If a woman in the game lies or cheats or steals, then she's fake and phony and a bitch. If a guy does it, it's good gameplay. If a guy does it, they're a stud it's gender bias and it holds me back. It holds other women back from playing the game the way we should be allowed to play the game. And you yourself made a similar comment during your first time out during the final tribal stating, quote, before I came into this game, I said, I wish I was a man because men in this game seem to be able to get two young girls to follow them to the end. And that's something I can't do. Poignant. So my question is, what was your experience as a strong and intelligent woman who won the game and in the process was labeled a spoiled brat? And did you see any difference in the way women were perceived in the game between seasons 23 and season 40?
2: Um. So honestly, I would say not enough difference. I think to this day, Survivor like reverts our world into a world with like um where genders matter <laughs> too much uh, and where you are very much defined by your by your gender. I think this was certainly true in South Pacific. I mean, and this is partially why I think you said that I had a good final tribal, because I think I saw that like the only path I had to victory was to not be the like spoiled brat bitch of the season, but to try to like be forceful only at the end and to make people realize only at the end, hey, I know what I'm doing, I'm not an idiot, because I felt like if I did that throughout the season, that that would not be... Um, I would not make friends that way. That <laughs> People don't want to work with that woman. They want to work with the one that they thought I was, which is like quiet, meek, okay, yes, I'll do what you tell me to do. Um, and that's that's why I felt like I had to play that way. And I don't even think it was like that, I don't even think I had that much of a gender awareness about that going in. I think it's like, it was naturally how I felt on that tribe with all of these strong males who wanted to work together um, and seemed to want to work with me in my quiet form. On survivor winners at war, I honestly think that there was still there was still a bunch of that. So when the merge happened and we got to the merge, there was, you know, you guys saw it on TV. sorry for it goes on TV. There was all this conversation on TV about the was it lions? It was like, who are the lions? who are the hyenas? Um, and granted, there were some women who were like allowed to be called lions. But a lot of the conversation on the beach about like, who do we get out, it was as if like if you were tall and had a penis, and had muscles that like automatically made you threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple people that were deemed to be threats around the merge time were people like Jeremy and Ben, who, by the way, up to that point, like really had not done much in the game. Like Jeremy is a great survivor player. He did not, he didn't do much in Winners at War at all. And so it was baffling me when I was out there. And Kim was really pissed about it too, how people just kept talking about the big threats without without having any proof behind why they were threats. And the problem with survivors, the more you talk about that and the more you call somebody a threat, well, if they get to the end, then they kind of are a threat. Like, do they deserve to win because they've been labeled a threat and then they got through the gunfire and here they are at the end. So I felt very frustrated on winners at war by this, like all this discourse around, but it's, I mean, it's this balance where you're like, you don't want, you don't want everybody to be labeling Jeremy, Tony, and Ben as threats because they're big and then they're gonna win the game because that's how they were presented, but you also don't want them to be you as a threat too early. So you're kind of happy that you're, they're not calling you a threat, but that you're, you're kind of not. Um, I, I do think that Sarah suffers. For, I think Sarah is an incredible player. Um, I think she's incredibly emotionally manipulative. Um, and I think that it is, I think she truly does suffer. I'm not sure she would have won the game on Winners at War had she made the end, uh, even though I think potentially she, sh- she should have. Um, and I do think that for her, a lot of it was gender. I think that she is able to manipulate friendships, um, in a way that's like not seen as very womanly. And I think that women who like act out of the prototypical, you know, woman persona, um, are seen, it's, it's just, it's not rewarded by the jury.
1: I wonder if there were wondering if there were any, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh pre-game strategizing and being mindful of the fact that there hadn't been a female winner since Game Changers, I imagine that there was, or I, or rather I wanted to see that the women on, on season 40 would sort of have a mindfulness around that in terms of wanting to take out the men earlier on in the game, which was not the case. And in season 41, we had that really interesting conversation in the last episode between Ricard and Shan, in which Ricard sort of made Shan aware of the fact that he thinks this season is going to be different, That and, and and maybe so. I think one of the challenging things about Shan going out is as much as I want a female winner this season, Shan was the female winner that I think I and so many were hoping for to really have that like dominant female winner. But anyway, I'm just curious, like, were you mindful of that at all? Were you thinking, God, it's been five seasons, do so we need another season with a male winner?
2: I I was, I remember taking, I remember before I went on Winners at War doing, I was living in New York at the time, and my husband and I would do these long, like multi-bridge walks where we would go like over the Williamsburg Bridge, over the Brooklyn Bridge, back to Williamsburg. Uh, and I would just like <laughs> talk survivor and it really annoy him. But I remember one of my theories going into the game, I had a lot of theories that were not useful, but one of my theories going into the game was that like, maybe just getting to the end as a woman and being up against two men would be enough because you could pull this card. And I truly mean it in a card kind of way. Like you could potentially win the game and not deserve it, but pull the card of like, Saying to the jury, "Hey, like you guys—not you, but you as a jury—haven't voted for a woman woman in a really long time," and like using that truly in the way that like Republicans would use, like pulling the woman card, like yeah. actually pulling the woman card. Um so I actually went into the game thinking like this is a this is a good thing like this is a leg up that I have that I can say at the end hey look at yourself and I can try to frame what I've done in a maybe you should be valuing this more than more than you are like maybe you should be reconsidering the way that you're looking at this um and I think some of that might have been honest right getting people to really think about like am I am I being biased in this moment But potentially some of that could have been dishonest at the very end and making people give me more credit where it might not be due just because I was a woman. Uh, So it was very much top of mind. Um, But I would say that people are very reluctant to do all women alliances. There was a little talk of it at the merge with myself and Kim and Michelle, but Kim and I think never really trusted Michelle. Um, And on Survivor, like, unfortunately, I think the all-women's alliance has now become just like a total grenade, like the minute there's a, which is also another sexist thing, like how many all-male alliances have there been that we just don't call all-male, we just call it an alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, but the minute there's like a whiff of a women's alliance, it's like, you know, this is the most threatening thing in the world that we have to stop. Um, so it's kind of sad. I think for so many alternative worlds of Winners at War that I wish could play out and we could watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the all female alliance talk, and including on season 41, that we saw Danny really worried about a female alliance over on Yasa. And it's like that, that wasn't the case. And it's so frustrating because it's like there's only been like two or three, two I, that I can think of that have worked in survivor history. And, you know, and they're few and far between. And it's just so frustrating to then use that as an excuse to take out women who are not in an all women alliance and just continue to have, I mean, it's smart for the dominant men. Great. And it works, but it's frustrating to watch as a viewer. Um, So on your way out of winners at war, you said, I probably came into this game thinking I was a bottom tier winner and it's been fun realizing that I can hold my own. What gave you the feeling that you were a bottom tier winner? because you're not, and you never were.
2: <laughs> Thank you, I know that now. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit, which is like, I came back from South Pacific feeling really like I'd kicked ass. Like I'd I'd controlled every vote and that was not what was shown on TV. Mm. And I think that that got to me. Um, and, you know, also you, you see these other winners who get, um, and I don't wanna say it's just edit because there are people, there are just like kick ass winners out there. I mean, you see Todd like control China, um, and, and Kim, obviously, Be So Dominant, and Tony, and like, you have these people who are also both incredible winners and incredible characters. And I think I just, I think I felt like I was not, you know, I'm not, I'm not on that, I'm not on that level. Uh, and I think I went into the game um, n- without like the same confidence that I went in with South Pacific. Uh, so actually going into the game, my main thing on this season, because I was like, you know, if I'm going to go back and I'm the chances of winning are so slim. Like I need to be able to get something out of this season. I need to not. I need to not go and feel like success is only winning because the chances are I'm going to lose and I'm going to be disappointed and it's going to be a waste of time. So I went out onto this season telling myself I just want to prove to myself that I can have fun every day and that I can play really really hard. And great if those things end up in a win, but if not, like. I don't this is getting into a lot, but like I'm somebody in my daily in my everyday life, especially after my first season of survivor, like i struggled with mental health issues and, and depression and have felt like at times in my life, like having fun in my day-to-day life is is difficult. And being happy on a day-to-day basis is difficult. And so and I felt like on my first season of Survivor, being happy every day, I was not happy every day. Like I was miserable in my first season of Survivor. I cried a lot. And so I was like, if I can go out and just play Survivor in a way that I am having joy every day. And I'm like kicking butt in small ways. If I have small victories every day, like that will be such an incredible life experience and that will make this worth it, even if I lose. And so I was like obsessive about this on a day to day basis. I I was so obsessive that um, Rob had this song that he would sing around the campfire that everybody would sing with him that was like, 25 days till plane day, 25 days till plane day, 25 days till we get on that like fucking plane. And it was basically like counting down the days until Survivor was over. And I hate, I refused to sing it. I told them like, I'm not going to sing. I told them I'm not going to sing it. And it was because like I was so obsessed with like, I don't want to hate this experience. I don't want to hate every day. I want to find ways to have fun. And I think for me, focusing on having fun made me like a better player. It made me every day think about like, what are the ways I can manipulate people? What are the ways I can tell lies? How can I find an idol? And so I think for me coming out of the game, I was in this mood of, I was very proud of myself. Like I was in this mood of feeling like I had accomplished what I set out to accomplish, which was like having very small victories, like finding idols, making good alliances, blindsiding people and like having fun while I did it. Um, I don't know if this is the question you asked, but that, that was my mentality going out was this, it was funny because obviously I left the first season with million dollars and feeling like I just kicked ass and won the game. Uh, and that's not ended, you know, like eventually how I felt emotionally about the experience. I think I felt really low about my first season. And yet the second season I was like, what, 10th place and place, placed like not at all, um, you know, in the final and yet really felt like I kicked butt.
1: I just got to say, though, it's like just that response alone and that sort of mindfulness around playing the game sort of underlines what I love about this show and why why I so enjoy getting to do these interviews uh, that we get to do with these players like yourself because it's not just like going out to an island and voting people out and playing in challenges. There's, there's thoughtfulness around like, Uh, human beings and the evolution of like who we are in the world that play out vis-a-vis this game. And as I was saying with Ozzy earlier, with his response about his evolved uh, mentality about how he played the game. So I just think that's incredible.
2: It permeates my everyday life. Like I can't tell you every... I talk about this a lot with my husband now that we have a child, and I will tell you children are really difficult and somewhat suck, um, at least for the first year. And... We, ha- I, we have so many conversations where, with him where I, where my whole mantra is like, we have to love our life every single day. Um, because like, this is, this is it. I don't know. Like, what's that Jonathan Safford four for quote where it's like, um, it's like the two fishes are swimming and like one fish is the other thing, like it's water warm. And the other fish says like, uh, what's, what's water. And it's like this whole idea about like, you just need to be like present and enjoy your everyday life, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, like every single day with our child, I feel like I make this conscious effort to like not focus on to-do lists and not focus on the fact that he didn't sleep and focus instead on like what is the fun, what is a way that I can have fun with my child today? And I truly believe like the only reason I am able to like have this mindset every single day at work and in my personal life is because I like went through Survivor and went through like such a difficult 39 days, particularly in my first season where I was unable to have that mindset. Um, where like I super value it now. Like after my child was born, I was miserable. I like really wanted to find a box to put him into. And I told my husband, I was like, we're gonna talk in 39 days. And if in 39 days, I love this child, then we, then like, that'll be good. And I'm not even gonna worry about it for 39 days. The day went by and I didn't even notice it. Like I didn't even say, oh my God, it's day 39 and we're still alive. Um, so yeah, Survivor, uh, it's like, a, it's, a, it's a real thing. <laughs>
1: Mm, that's very profound uh, we have a few more questions we don't want to keep you for too much longer but uh, one question I am super keen to discuss with you as we have been watching season 41 both Sean and I have been commenting quite a bit about Jeff Propes' noticeable change in demeanor uh, also in physical appearance that's another conversation uh, Parvati recently commented that she thinks Probst is having quote identity crisis as someone who's dealt with him twice in the game and then for years as a viewer before and after you played um what are your
2: thoughts on jeff probst i'm fascinated by jeff probst because i feel like the first couple seasons of jeff probst is just like a dude on a show and now like we are basically watching somebody who's committed his life to running a crazy effed up game on an island. Like it is, he is no longer just a host of a show. Like Survivor is his life. And I feel like somebody that that in and of itself is a like a fascinating person to dive into. And he's gone through so many different evolutions from I mean, there have been times where he has wanted to, I think, quit the show. He had that around the time actually that I was on Survivor, he went off and did this like daytime talk show that was a total disaster. Um <laughs> And I mean the, the probes that I saw in 23 and the probes I saw in in, in 40 were 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 certainly very different. And I, I agree with Parvati. Like I don't know if I would go so far to say this is having a, a crisis, as much as like we are watching in the same way that I evolved in the 10 years between being 21 and being 31 on the show. Like we have to let Jeff evolve as well. And it's natural, like that he is changing. And I certainly saw that in 40. I think he was. He, I don't, I can't remember if it made air, but like he talked a lot about like looking back on his former self and feeling like bad about the way that he um, responded to certain situations on Survivor, about how he had only called men by their last name and not women by their last names. I like, I certainly got the impression in season 40 that he was being reflective. Um, and I get the sense on this season that we are like kind of watching that play play out still. I will say there are moments that it feels more genuine and moments where it feels like a little more forced. Um, and I, am not to say that he's not being genuine about all of it. I just think sometimes on TV it doesn't come off that well. Like, I don't know how you guys felt about the whole, like, come on in guys thing. I think in theory, like, I like that the question is being asked. Um, I like that people had the opportunity, like Ricard had the opportunity to say, I don't like it. Um, but it didn't, it felt like it was like Jeff trying on a, like a new hat being like, does this work on me? Like cool, woke guy, uh, like, that's not working. Like I'll try something else. Um, yeah, I
0: think I think if Jeff wanted to change, come on in, guys, to come on in, Jeff could have just changed do it. to come yeah. on in. Just do it. Yeah. Uh, also, the gender. Know, the, the, yeah, the result, unfortunately, was that then Ricard now has Ricard you know, got like, all Joe, this
2: flack. Exactly. Yeah, you, which is... yeah,
0: you talked about the social the experience yeah. being on social media as a survivor player. So now that's that's Ricard's experience. And now he I mean, has to I be think, the one who like, for it. Yeah. yeah, right. I think and he's past that now, but that was sort of I think his experience of being a survivor player, like up to the merge at least, and that's uh, that wasn't necessary.
1: Right, yeah. and the gender inequity within the show just continues on. So it's sort yeah. of like the the solve, like the attempt at a solve, is wonderful, but is that that action is not the actual solve that the show needs, and it's not just a matter of like getting a female winner in place. That's not what it is, but there are ways in which. And I always say this, like both by design and in evolution, this show favors women, excuse me, women, I wish. This show favors men. And so I think like having that conversation is necessary, but is the come on in of it all really the crux of it? No, not at all. But you know.
2: Honestly, I mean, Probst, says, Probst says that he's fascinated by human behavior, right? This is why he like still does the show to this day. He loves tribal counsel. Like those things last three hours because he like just can't help himself to ask all these questions. Like he's obviously genuinely passionate about it. I don't think seeing him try to grapple with these issues in like two seconds on TV, does him any good or the show any good? I would love to hear Jeff do a podcast about Survivor where like he actually discusses these issues and like actually talks to contestants about you know things in a way that it's not on a 45 minute scripted thing i just think he's not mm-hmm. if he cares about this stuff it's not going to be solved with him making a couple comments and on travel council like congratulating a woman
0: totally so sophie we just have a few more questions for you uh, but the number one that i know people want to know is would you play again you had this experience in 40 i uh, would ninth tenth out uh is there another win for sophie in the future
2: so I have to tell you, when we were on 40, I can't tell, everybody was like, even by day six, everyone was like, what the hell are we doing? (laughs) Like, why are we here? It's so, it's just so difficult. Like I, it's hard to explain to people how difficult like starving truly is. Um, And granted, even 40, we had more food. Uh, So I would say and there was times actually in the Edge of Extinction where we talked about like how much would somebody have to pay you to stay on this stupid island for like another thirty days, and most of us were like, "Give me a million dollars or I'm going home." Like it is absurd how much money we all would demand to even stay there for an extra day, um, and except for there was a very few people like Wendell and Michelle were like, "Oh no, I can just like live out here for months." So I will say that when I was on season 40, I was like, I'm never doing this again. This is totally crazy. I would probably do this again. My husband is going to kill me if he listens to this podcast. <laughs> um, but I I do feel like getting to like check in with myself every 10 years through this kind of almost like, um, what are those kind of journeys that people like uh, Native Americans would take where like the boy would go off and like walk through the woods for two months and come home a man. I feel like there's a name for this.
0: A like, spirit journey?
2: Yeah. I feel like it's my spirit I- journey. Um, I don't feel the need, I don't feel the need to play this year in a, like, I want, for me, it's less about like, I want to win Survivor and I have a new like strategy. And it's more for me, like an emotional and personal evolution Mm. that like, I would love to play maybe in 10 years as like a a strung out mom who needs a break and see Mm. what like the Sophie of being 40 years old, how, Mm. how that person plays. Uh, I guess that's the role that Survivor plays in my life now. I don't need to play every year for the rest of my life.
1: Well, we very look very much look forward to seeing that next evolution yeah. of sophie on the show uh real quickly i do want to ask you about the new york crew of survivors so full disclosure stephen fishback is my former boss um Wait, he actually what? yes he actually <laughs> left to go play second chances when he was my boss and i thought at the time <gasps> what a loser i can't believe he's like gonna quit his like corporate job to go play this dumb game and now here i am like gripped Knowing that like he is. You such guys should interview big... Steven. Oh, we certainly will. Oh, don't, don't... Okay. I am very much in touch with Steven Fishback. I was voice messaging him throughout my journey, not even knowing about Rob has a podcast and that how he has this major presence. So here I was thinking like, oh, I'm gonna like get all this behind oh, the he is scenes a star. stuff. Exactly. But I do I am just curious. Like we've heard a little bit about the New York crew, and I know you were a part of the New York crew. Can you sort of talk about that crew? Is it very much you guys meet up and talk about Survivor? Are you meeting up and shooting the shit? What was that like?
2: The New York crew has gone through an evolution. So when I first was on the show in 2011, I just moved to New York and they reached out saying, hey, do you guys wanna come watch Survivor with me? Honestly, like the New York crew, Survivors are cast to be crazy. Um, and I feel like each city has their own kind of vibe of survivors and like LA is like a tonal thing, but the New York crew was fun because it was like kind of the nerds of survivors over the years. You know, all the lawyers, we had Eliza Orleans, you have Charlie, then you have like, you know, Brian, all the like brash Ivy league educated, um, assholes, all, all kinds of ended (laughs) up in New York, like a super progressive crew compared to like most, I mean, survivor casts should tend to be pretty Republican, um, so just was I just think it was like an incredible group of people, we'd all get together and watch every Wednesday together, um, you know, bring wine and cheese. So we ended up being dubbed the wine and cheese crew. For me, like in my 20s in New York, it was like such a fun, um, like another group of people to hang out with. Uh, now a lot of us have spread out, unfortunately. So we we live on through occasional meets up meetups, but through also a very... Uh, spicy, spicy text chain. Um, <laughs> but Eliza is very much, I would say Eliza's the heart and soul of the wine and cheese. Eliza, Charlie, Brian, Stephen, Courtney. I mean, it's a, like you could do a wine and cheese survivor. I feel like New York versus LA survivor would be great. Um,
1: oh my God. But, Make that a theme know. season. Okay, two last questions, keeping it really short. Curious, who is the most unsung winner of Survivor? Ooh, very good
2: question. Just give me a moment. So many of them are sung. So I don't want to say yeah. people who are sung. Um, and it's nobody the unsung recent ones like Tommy and the other guy are not it. Um they're not. I still I almost think you still have to go with Todd. Uh, because I feel like I I actually think that he probably is sung in the cult survivor super fan world, mm-hmm. but not being on season 40, being you know, shafted on that, casuals probably don't remember him. One mm-hmm. of the greatest winners of all time, Todd great answer
0: absolutely yeah should have been on winners of war yes okay so before we go i want to get your predictions on season 41 i know we've been sprinkling it throughout here but who's going home with the million dollars you have to pick like now you're putting money on it who is it
2: i oscillate between ricard and erica and I'm going to say Erica. And I know that okay. Edgic does not agree with me and that Erica doesn't have the winner's edit. And if a win- woman was winning the show, it wouldn't be Erica. But like one, I think she's a good. I think she's a great game player. Uh, I think she's like navigating her, her situation well. Um, and two, I think editing wise, like I think we just keep hearing everybody talk about how good of a a player Erica is. And we've heard a lot of compliments about Erica and how well she's playing and how she's threatening. Um and I think the fact that she's like kind of going between a lot of different people and able to have relationships with Heather, but also make moves with Shan. Um I'm 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 putting my money in Erica for now. Okay. Do
0: you think that in a final travel where Ricard is up against Erica, he like is he losing because of his lack of social connection? I mean like there's no Ua on the jury, right? There's none of his original tribe on the jury. Is it, the, is it like, does he lose on the social? This is assuming he's in the final. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I, I think, I can't imagine Ricard losing on anything else other than the social, right? Like, he's he's obviously, honestly, and I think I said this on Robs podcast, but, like, I feel like all of these players barring Heather maybe, have done enough to win the game. And this was a little bit of my problem that in Winners at War. I think I didn't realize soon enough, like I've done enough. I could do nothing else other than survive this game and potentially win the game. And when you're out there, you get this mentality of like, I need to make big moves, I need to make big, 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 big moves, I need to make all these big moves. All of these people have, Proven their worth. If they get to the end, like they've probably done enough. And I think it's just going to come down to pe- who do people like the most. And that's it kind is. of what Survivor always comes down to, which is also what I like about Survivor. Like, yeah, you're giving somebody a million dollars, you have to like them with a little bit of crowning a prom queen kind of moment. Um, and I saw, I thought Erica's confessionals about her time on Exile Island were really compelling. And I think she's able to speak really well to her journey. Like, we've seen her do it with produ- pro- producers. Speaking about how she came out, feeling like she didn't have any outdoor skills, and how she couldn't do it, and how she's blossoming—like you can just imagine her saying that at final tribal council, and people thinking, like, that's somebody I want to give the money to. People love growth; they love most improved awards, um, and I think that she's going to be able to tell that story well.
0: Well, like she's that. a communications manager, so. Oh, is
2: she? Yeah. There we go. So she there may do
0: well in front of a jury.
2: Huh. Sophie Clark,
1: thank you so much. I think that this could not have gone better from our end. And it's just so fun to talk with a legendary player who is then able to talk about the game with such like ease and insights. And you are the full package in terms of like what we would want out of a guest on this show. This has been a delight.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. And I have to say I was a little stressed coming on, because I have a friend who's just like totally is obsessed with your Twitter or your Instagram account. And she has been texting me all the time being like, when are you going to this podcast? When are you going to this podcast? And I know she's going to listen. And I I just hope that I've lived up to Isabel's expectations. Wow. Okay. Well,
1: (laughs) shout out to Isabel. Yeah. Anyway,
2: I hope that I one day get to meet you in person and just talk Survivor over a beer for hours. um, Absolutely.
1: Next time you're in New York City, let's like round up the crew. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) All right. Thank you again. Thank you so
0: much, Sophie. Bye. Bye. okay that was sophie clark evan what did you think
1: icon legend moment just really insightful i feel like Mm -hmm. i learned a lot about the game of survivor and i learned a lot about sophie clark as a human being Mm -hmm. and i think sophie proved her legendary status in like just her perspective on so many things. I mean, you have the conversation about uh, the cuddling with Rob and her not even kind of reconciling her own thoughts around that, which I think is just so complex. And then I also just appreciated her sort of like philosophy around the game, which has spilled out over into her life. And that idea of like choosing to seek joy and and the constant check-in around that joy. I just think that, you know we look at so many players of this game and it's kind of like, what do they really bring? And I think Sophie brings so much to the table, both as a player of survivor and as a human being. And I'm really delighted that like we have a platform like drop your buffs in which we can, celebrate someone like Sophie and I mean I, I don't know I feel like she just did so much of the work for us she you know we teed her up and then she just I don't know baseball but she kept hitting the <laughs> home runs or grand slams or something so I yeah. thought it was just a real thrill start to finish how do you feel yeah I think
0: that she's such an interesting person to talk to I feel like I wish that we had four more hours yeah. to go into yeah. depth because she understands this game in a way that I think very few former players do and she is at once a game bot but also just such a genuine and real normal person and I think that that's like part of the reason that she didn't get the grand winners edit that uh, others get when she was in season 23 that we talked about because she is not like an outrageous character she's just a smart funny young woman in South Pacific And she understands the game and she's just going to play the best game that she can play and she does and she wins. And so I just really, really appreciate that she's just, you know, she's smart, she's witty, and she gets the game and wants to talk about the game. I like that she came ready with questions for us or just like questions occurred to her and I felt like we could have done that for much much longer but Sophie has a brand new baby at home that she has to tend to so but generously
1: she gave us like I think we like went well oh yes we went minutes, over but we went over. what's funny and I people don't know this but like you and I are editing the questions in real time as we're in conversation with the guests and with Sophie it's like it's a struggle because it's like she says something and then we want to ask a follow up. So then we have to take out another question. And then we're like, God damn it. Like, I wish we could have asked that question. There's so much more to unpack with her. Hopefully, we'll have her back again. But I think that she is a real testament to why there is such a universe around this show um, and why people go back and watch old seasons and why you have all so much analysis around the show itself, because she brings a dynamism where, as you pointed out, she is many things. You, 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 she, you can't really put her in a box. And if anything, I think I come away from this interview. I mean, I already was such a big fan, but I come away from this interview, just like with, with both more respect for her as a survivor player, but just a genuine, like, respect and admiration for her as a human being and I don't know if I can say that about so many of the players on this show um and so I think in that sense she's a real real rarity yeah yeah
0: you mean on this show Survivor not on Drop Your Buffs
1: not on Drop Your Buffs no on Drop Your Buffs <laughs> I think one of our intentions is to seek out these these yeah. rarities
0: yeah yeah uh, I also Learned a little bit more about the uh, Survivor Wine and Cheese New York crew, which has always been a great mystery for me. And now I have this whole new mystery of the L.A. crew and like what that season would look like if there was a divide.
1: Right. I'm also curious, like, what does this text message thread that she spoke of, Um, like, what does that look like? Because there would be nothing that would make me more happy than watching. Because this crew sounds like a lot of our faves. And, the, like, the thought of them being on a text thread talking shit about other Survivor players just – and I'm not saying that's <laughs> what they do. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if she they – She did do, say it's spicy. One, she said it's okay, spicy. Okay, well, I like it spicy. So I would be very, very intrigued by that. Um, yeah. And I'm excited. We have I, – I don't want to get into the habit of, like, teasing guests, but we have some people from the New York crew in the pipeline at some point. And I think yes. it will be really exciting to talk to them about uh, – more about that. But also just like interesting to think about the fact that like you come off of this show and when you're in one of the bigger cities like in New York, LA or Chicago, you naturally, not naturally, you can seek out friendships with people because you have this shared experience that is so incredibly unique. And as Sophie articulated, this is something that stays with you for the rest of your life. You There's mm-hmm. never going to be an experience quite like this. And so I think it's cool to know that how many like authentic friendships have been formed as a result of this show and it's, it's cool to see how many people stay connected
0: yes okay so let's wrap it up if anybody has thoughts on sophie's interview uh what questions didn't we ask maybe we can have sophie on again i would love that because i felt like there's so much more conversation to have um you can always drop us a voice memo just head over to instagram i'm at soda.pup i listen to them all And we have a mailbag episode coming up after 41 wraps, so we will be answering all kinds of questions. If you have specific thoughts on South Pacific, it's very fresh in our mind having uh, talked to Sophie, so we would love to dive into that. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our upcoming recaps of Survivor 41 and our other interviews to come. And give us a rating, if you feel like it, on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to read the reviews. There's some coming in. We do
1: indeed. And you know, if you can't get enough Survivor winners on Drop Your Buffs, I would say stay tuned. Stay tuned. Because we can't either.
0: (laughs) Okay. Thank you for listening. Bye.
1: Bye.